Welcome back to the Dirt Show. <laughs> a lot has happened since the last time we spoke on Wednesday. I want to make a personal uh, comment. Um, just yesterday, a very close lawyer friend of mine uh, died after a long bout of Alzheimer's. His name was Gerald Shargell. He had a wonderful obituary in today's uh, New York Times. The interesting thing about Jerry Shargell, we did his first case together right out of law school. Uh, we did together. In fact, um, the law clerk uh, on that case was none other than um, Justice Alito. And he once told me that one of the reasons he became a, a criminal lawyer, he was a prosecutor, was because he saw me in action and Jerry, Jerry Shargell in action, uh, snapping victory out of the jaws of defeat. We helped our, our clients not spend a day in jail, even though they had been convicted and sentenced to many, many Many years. Um, Jerry Shargell is one of the last of the criminal law breed who will represent anybody. I mean, in the obituary, it talked about how proud he was to represent uh, John Gotti and members of the mafia and corrupt politicians. Uh, I don't myself brag about representing uh, bad guys, but, but I do it. In fact, Jerry's death um, led me to think that I would put up a contribution every year to have an award, maybe in Jerry's name, uh, I would call it the John Adams Award for the lawyer who took on the most despised and hated um, client. I'd probably win it for my Trump uh, defense one year, but that was only several years ago. Every year there'd be a, a different winner. And um, because we're losing the tradition of John Adams and, and Daniel Webster, <laughs> and Abraham Lincoln, and um, uh, Thurgood Marshall, and um, so many other people who over the years have uh, uh, put their reputations and their fortunes at stake by representing uh, the most despised people in the world. As H.L. Mencken once said, you have to defend the SOBs because the SOBs are the ones they come after first. They make bad laws on them, and then they come after the rest of us. So um, we don't represent bad guys because we like bad guys. I hate bad guys. I hate criminals. I hate the mafia. I don't like most of the people I've represented. But uh, like a doctor in the emergency ward, you take the most heinous cases. You take the most unpopular cases. The great doctors are the ones who go into the emergency ward uh, when they know people have communicable diseases like COVID. Uh, and, and now monkeypox and others. Uh, my grandson just finished a rotation uh, for his medical internship in, uh, in infectious diseases. That's what doctors do. And that's what great lawyers like uh, Jerry Shargell uh, do. So I want to dedicate this program to, uh, to my friend, my dear friend, uh, Jerry Shargell, who uh, had a very tragic um, ending um, the Alzheimer's and then, then his death. So, you know, normally I read, um, emails at the end of the show. Uh, today I'm devoting the entire show to an email I got over the weekend. I think it's a valid email. I've done everything I can to check it. Um, I wrote to the person and, uh, got details and checked it out as much as I could, but I can't obviously vouch for its authenticity, but without regard to that, it's really worth reading and, and discussing. So I'm going to read you an excerpt from, from the email. 
I would like to mention to you something that I've never experienced in my entire life. I was reading your book yesterday on the beach, and the book he was reading was this one, uh, The Case for Liberalism in an Age of Extremism, or Why I Left the Left but Can't Join the Right. It was, you know, an attempt to make the case for why genuine liberalism, not radicalism, not the extreme left, but genuine liberalism and genuine conservatism are basically the, the, the centrist essence of America. Any event, he was reading the book uh, yesterday at the beach when some guys who I was playing beach volleyball with asked me about the book that I was reading. So I showed them the book. They then asked me why I chose this book. And so I told them that I had a great deal of respect for the author. The next thing that happened came as a total shock to me. Without warning, I was slugged and punched in the face. I asked why that was called for. And I was told that's because his, that is my, political views and mine differ. I told him that I get it, that our views points differ, but why can't we at least be civil about it? With that, he laughed, shoved me once again into the sand and kicked sand all over me. My question to you, he continues, is why people can have political differences, respect each other's points of view and just be civil about it. Honest to goodness, this is the first time I've ever experienced such an incident and I would appreciate if you can tell me what I do to deserve this, because honestly, I just don't get it. I was taught by my stepmom always to be respectful of others, even though I might not agree with the other person. I thought that I was being myself and honest. I don't know, Mr. Dershowitz. I don't get it. I don't get why I got this kind of treatment. So I wrote him in back, you know, trying to get details about uh, everything. Uh, what happened? Did he get the name of the person? He responded, I had myself looked after at some local hospital. Once I was cleared to go, I went to the library, uh, to a library of and continued to read your book. I wanted to avoid contact with anybody. I guess he means he went to, to the reading room in the library to read it so nobody would interfere with it. To be honest with you, I felt that if I were in a public place, the odds were that I'd be okay and enjoy reading your book. How I really feel is violated because I never dreamed of this happening, and now I'm being censored to something I may, may not read or think. And then he told me where he was from. Actually, I'm from Canada. I'm on holidays in Burlington, Vermont. What I do is represent, by the way, I checked. I, I, my first instinct was Burlington, Vermont. There's no beaches. There's no sand in Burlington, Vermont. Maybe he's making it up. Of course, I checked and there's Lake Champlain, which has sandy beaches. I got the pictures and I, you know, I did. I did the research I could do and, and, and I found out what I could and then I'm from Canada. I'm on holiday. What I do is I represent a textile kneading mill that is located just outside of L.A. And I sell fabric material to clothing manufacturing companies who produce the garments. It goes on and on and on. And then he gives me permission to circulate the letter. Uh, please share this with others, Mr. Dershowitz. The physical wounds will get over. But I don't get it. How could society allow this to happen? That's the lowest I've ever seen anyone do. Uh, he says, where the encounter occurred was at a beach in Vermont, very nice and scenic here as well as quiet, or so I thought. So, you know, that's the letter. Uh, and what does it tell us? Uh, you know, we're becoming so intolerant a country. Again, I never make comparisons to, to uh, Nazi Germany or to rarely to Stalinist Russia or uh, Mussolini's Italy, but that's what was going on. In countries like that, Nazis would come and beat up kids who were reading books that they uh, disapproved of. And uh, I'm sure there are people on the right who would do the same thing. But And I don't know, by the way, whether these, 
this person was on the right or left. Remember, the book he was reading is the case for liberalism. The guy may have been a conservative um, and, and may have taken offense at liberalism, or he may have been a radical leftist, and he took offense at the fact that I wrote it and I said why I left the left and, and couldn't join the right. I, I don't know the answer to those questions. So consider it as if it were a law school hypothetical. What do you think of that? And what do you think it tells us about our society today that people are willing to hit other people because of the books they read? Look, I remember having an experience where I wanted to hit somebody for his political beliefs. Um, I think my wife will remember this. She's sitting next to me. Uh, remember days when you actually had to stand on line in the bank? Yeah. So this was uh, Bay Bank in Boston. I think it's now become Bank of America. I'm not sure it's one of the big banks. But I was standing on line to what, deposit my monthly salary. Who's ever heard of anything like that today? But I was on the line. And the guy two places ahead of me on the line was wearing uh, like one of these undershirt shirts. And he had tattoos all over his arm. No problem, except they were swastikas. <laughs> And he had a hat on, um, which had a swastika. And, um, and the swastika on the hat was a pin. And uh, so I, I walked over to him. Uh, I'm not a big guy. and He was a pretty big guy. I walked over to him and I said, sir, do you realize how offensive it is for you to be in a public place like this wearing a swastika? Do you know what the swastika stands for? Do you know what it did to my people, my relatives in, in Germany? Are you aware of how offensive what you're doing is? He says, you know, F off, buddy. Whereupon I did a very stupid thing. I grabbed the pin off his hat and I stomped it on the floor, fully expecting that he'd punch me. And he ran off and he didn't punch me. Um, I shouldn't have done it. He has the right to wear a swastika. I have the right to criticize his wearing the swastika, but I had no right to destroy his property. I didn't punch him in the mouth. I felt like it. And if I had been 6'4 and 230 and worked out, I'm not telling you here and now that I wouldn't have punched him, but I didn't. Uh, so I understand the instinct to punch somebody, not for reading a book like The Case for Liberalism, I mean, but for wearing a swastika. Uh, but, but, you know, that's an extreme case. But to punch somebody who's reading a book just is just so un-American. Uh, and, and it's so typical of what's happening today in America. Uh, you know, I think we're going to see a time when libraries are going to refuse to carry books that are controversial. Bookstores are going to do that. Look, I had a case some years ago where I had a favorite bookstore in Harvard Square uh, that I used to go to. They always had magazines from all over the world, and I would spend a half an hour there uh, thumbing through the magazines from, you know, France and Germany and 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 buying a couple of them. And, um, and one day, fortunately, I was not in the store at the time, but somebody shot a bullet uh, through the window of the store in Harvard Square to protest the fact that among the magazines it sold uh, under the counter, uh, was uh, Playboy magazine. And this was a feminist who was deeply offended by the fact that a bookstore would sell uh, Playboy. And so she shot through the window. Um, and the bookstore stopped selling Playboy as the result. They didn't want bullets being shot at them. But 
what if the next time somebody shoots at the store because it sells Marx uh, or Lenin or, or, or the Bible uh, or uh, the biography of Theodor Herzl or the biography of Yasser Arafat? Um, do we really want to live in a society where our libraries only carry books on one side uh, or where they don't carry controversial uh, books? Uh, you know, cancel culture is bad enough. And as I wrote in the introduction to my newest book, uh, The Price of, of Principle, the reason I write books is because you can't cancel a book unless you burn it or censor it or destroy it. Books will endure. You know, I might not endure, but, you know, this book will be in some libraries, probably not the Chilmark Library, but some libraries, uh, Library of Congress and other places, and uh, two or 300 years from now, people can, can read what I wrote if they choose to. Uh, when I was first a law clerk on the Supreme Court, I had a special outfit that I would wear on the days that I went to the uh, Library of Congress because I was doing research on the history of capital punishment for Justice Goldberg. And I would be reading books from the 18th and 17th century. And, you know, they all were falling apart and little pieces of leather would fall on me and it would be dusty and everything. And I'd have to clean up all my clothes. So I had always made sure not to wear nice clothing when I went to the library. But I could read books that were two, 300 years old. Today, you can get them online. Uh, so I don't think censorship is ever going to succeed. But what is the mindset that allows uh, and encourages censorship? Today, people on the right don't want people on the left to read books on the left. People on the left don't want people to read books on, on the right. I get the mail all the time today. I got a bunch of letters um, uh, about that, about, yeah, we understand you represent uh, people. Uh, in fact, I circulated the obituary about my friend Jerry Shargell, and the letters I got in response was, all right, that the mafia, that's one thing. Mass murderers, that's another thing. We understand that. Rapists, we understand that. But Donald Trump, how can you represent him? I mean, you know, it's just unbelievable. And then on the other side, people would say if I ever defended um, uh, Joe Biden, as I did defend uh, Bill Clinton, um, how could you represent people like that? Well, you know, if you couldn't represent people that any other person didn't like, nobody would get representation. Oh, yeah, you get a few people. You get my client, Anatoly Sharansky, a great hero of international human rights. Nobody ever criticized me for representing him except, of course, the communists in, 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 in uh, the Soviet Union, but no rational person would criticize me for representing him. And, you know, I've had a few other clients like that, too. Everybody likes that you represented them. For example, now <clears throat> there's this terrible, terrible case of a doctor who's being investigated for doing an abortion on a 10 year old little girl who was raped and was pregnant. And, 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 and they're thinking they won't prosecute him in the end. And, and if they prosecute him, by the way, I'm not going to take the case. You know why I'm not going to take the case? Too easy. It's too easy. Anybody can win that case. And every lawyer in the world is going to want to take that case. I don't take cases that other people could just as easily take. If I were a doctor, you know, I, I wouldn't be dealing with ingrown toenails. I would want to be a heart surgeon or want to take on the hardest cases. So although I'm enormously sympathetic and I could get a lot of points among my friends if I represented this, this doc, I'm not going to do it. Uh, it's too easy and too many people will do it. Uh, I, I would defend if I were asked 
um, Officer Potter, the woman who was the police officer who pulled the taser instead of uh, pulled a, a real gun instead of a taser and by complete accident shot and killed somebody. She shouldn't have spent the day in jail. She shouldn't have been convicted. She shouldn't have been prosecuted. She should have had to go and take, you know, remedial lessons and how to make sure you pick the wrong gun. Uh, you, you don't pick the wrong gun. But, uh, I, but, but uh, those are the cases I take. And, and those are the cases I'm going to continue to take. Uh, you know, if you want, there's a, a great line in the, in the reversal of fortune, which my son Elon uh, co-produced. Um, and it has me, my character, played by you know, actor Ron Silver, and the Von Bulow character um, played by, uh, you know, uh, another great actor. What's his name, Carolyn? The actor who played Klaus Von Bulow? Yeah, um, Jeremy Irons. Jeremy Irons, yeah. I have my wife knows everything so um and we're sitting the characters are sitting and um and um at one point uh, von bulow says to to the dershowitz character everybody hates me and uh the dershowitz character responds something like well that's a plus for me taking the case uh and it is you know when i took the von bulow case everybody said uh you can't win and you shouldn't win and he attempted to murder his wife and all that. And then, of course, we proved there was no crime. And he was completely vindicated and acquitted unanimously in just a few minutes after he got a second fair trial after the appeal in the first trial. So, um, you know, it's so important to maintain the presumption of innocence. It's so important to maintain free speech for thee as well as for me, due process for thee as well as for me. But we live in an age where that's not happening, where that's diminishing, where uh, the ability to be neutral and objective um, is today regarded as a sin. If you mention the word meritocracy, uh, that becomes uh, a, a, a microaggression, maybe even a macro a meritocracy judging people on their own merits instead of the color of their skin or their gender or their uh, how can you do that? That's not fair. We don't want equality. We want equity. That's a new word, a new word, equity, which means inequality. Um, but that's what we're pushing toward, um, creating inequality to overcome inequalities of the past. That's equity. It's kind of affirmative action in aspects of life beyond universities and, and charges. Uh, you know, Maybe I'm a dinosaur. Maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I'm here to to defend the old values, uh, real equality, judging people, as Martin Luther King said, on the quality of their character, not the color of their skin. Um, admitting people to universities, not because their parents and grandparents went there, but because they worked their butt off to get the highest grades in the class uh, to get there. And even if they didn't have the highest grades, They've proved their ability in, in other ways. Meritocracy. Who could be opposed to meritocracy? I guess 20 years ago, if somebody got up and said, I don't believe in meritocracy, people would be shocked. How can you not, that's like not believing, you know, in what, whatever, and, and, you know, in the sun and the moon. Of course, you have to believe in meritocracy. Today, you can't believe in, in meritocracy. You know, the world has turned upside down. I remember the Woody Allen movie, I think it's Sleeper, 
where he gets up and he discovers that everything he's been told is wrong. That ice cream is actually very good for you. Um, orange juice is terrible. Uh, big fat steaks will make you live forever. Uh, chocolate cake, you know. Uh, uh, so, so sometimes I feel like that Woody Allen character. I've woken up in a world where so many of my values have today been turned into vices. And so many of the vices of the past have been turned into current day's values that it's it's frustrating. But I don't let frustration get me down. I fight back and I'm going to continue to fight back. I'm going to fight for a world in which people are judged by the quality of their character, by their accomplishments. I'm going to try to live in a world where everybody who's accused of a crime or criminal like behavior has an opportunity to defend themselves, to confront witnesses. I'm going to try to live in a world where the uh, January 6th committee is looked upon the way McCarthyism is now looked upon uh, as, as the paradigm of unfairness. You know, their goals are good. I agree with the goals of the January 6th committee. We have to make sure we never get a repeat of that terrible day. But uh, the means that have been used, uh, one-sided presentations of triple hearsay and, and uh, accepting that as the truth without an opportunity to cross-examine or present other evidence, that to me is the paradigm of the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And uh, we're sliding down this road to hell. Um, and it's so hard to combat because so many of the people who are uh, building this road are well-intentioned. Uh, they want to end poverty. They want to end uh, discrimination. They, they, they want to end climate uh, problems. Yeah, I'm with them on these things, but I want to see all that done through the proper means in a democracy. And we're just, we're just not seeing that. So I'm interested in, in your reaction because I, I think although today the fault is largely on the hard left, the fault's been on the right as well as the left. And it's been by Republicans as well as Democrats. Today it seems one-sided, but if you have a long enough view of history and you know, being nearly 84 years old, I can't say I've seen it all, but I've seen a lot of it. I lived through you know, the Holocaust, McCarthyism, uh, the 1960s, you know, the, the era of assassinations when John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, uh, we're all assassinated, um, the violence in colleges and uh, all that. And now we're in a, a different a different world, uh, which is very dangerous. I, I worry for the future of America, but I'm not going to sit back and worry. I'm going to do something about it. That's why I talk as I talk on the show. That's why I write uh, three op-eds a week. That's why I'm halfway through my 51st book and you're not going to shut me up so easily. All right, let's turn to some letters that we got over the past few days. Uh, okay. I remember I, I talked about Israel on the last show about whether, um, whether Biden has done uh, more good or harm. I think, by the way, he did more good than harm. I think um, he made it clear to the Palestinians, look, you want a state, you got to come and negotiate. You're not going to get a state by BDS. You're not going to get a state by terrorism. You're not going to get a state by calling Israel apartheid. Um, the United States supports Israel. Now, Tom Friedman wrote in two days ago's Times that Joe Biden may be the last Democratic candidate for president who's ever pro-Israel. 
that the Democratic Party is turning against uh, Israel in many ways, but Joe Biden has not done that. Did he do everything correctly? No, I don't think he should have taken down the Israeli flag when he went to East Jerusalem, but that's, you know, that's diplomacy. So here are some letters about Israel uh, from Jefferson. <laughs> Israel is not a baby anymore. The sovereign nation is over 70 years old. Uh, Israel can take care of itself. It does not require forced taxpayer funding. Private contributions are certainly permissible, but do not petition the U.S. government to act as an instrument of plunder to force American taxpayers to subsidize any foreign nation. I, I don't disagree with that approach. Israel gives more than it takes to America. Uh, Israel helped develop Iron Dome. Israel has provided America with extraordinary intelligence, and the vast majority of aid that Israel gets is aid given to help develop military technology, and it has to be spent on United States companies. Now, compare that to the aid that's given to Egypt, just designed to keep the tyranny of Egypt uh, stable. Jordan, the same thing. The king of Jordan, who wouldn't know Jordan history if he fell over it. He's a you know, comes from a Saudi Arabian family, but the British imposed the Hashemite kingdom on, on Jordan. And, and Jordan gets enormous amounts of money from, from the United States. The Palestinian Authority gets a lot of money. So, you know, if the United States wants to cut back on non-military aid to all the countries in the Middle East, it's cer certainly something to consider. But uh, the, the myth that, that Israel somehow is dependent on American foreign aid. It is to some degree dependent on American military aid, but America is to some degree dependent on Israeli military technology. It's a wonderful partnership that has helped both countries enormously. I, even in recent months, the United States and Israel together um, helped set back the Iranian nuclear program. They worked together militarily and I think if you ask generals in the United States from both political parties or from no political party, they'll tell you that the one country in the world that is most essential to American technology and defense militarily is Israel. Okay, next letter. Um, Dershowitz gives us the example of Germany and Japan surrender at the end of World War II, and yet he has a conceptual problem, namely they were not invited to any negotiation table. Everything was imposed on them. And this is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way wars have ended. It's the way I see it. Dersh is almost there, but not quite. Well, you got your history a little bit correct and a little bit wrong. Obviously, the peace was imposed on them. It was unconditional surrender, decided on at Malta, Yalta, rather, by Stalin and, and, and Roosevelt and Churchill. Unconditional surrender, no conditions, no negotiations. <laughs> And that happened, and that was a great, great victory. But then we had the Marshall Plan. Uh, remember, Hitler said, if we um, win the war and kill the Jews, Germany will be better off. Well, they didn't win the war, but they killed the Jews, and Germany was better off. Uh, Germany was rewarded for killing the Jews. Six million Jews were murdered by Germany. And then Germany, the only country in Europe to get the Marshall Plan. Um, and uh, they became the wealthiest and the most militarily um, adept country and armed country in all of Germany. So Germany didn't lose the war. Uh, Germany won the war. They just lost a lot of people and killed a lot of people. But in the end, they got exactly what they wanted. Uh, they became the strongest economy and the strongest military in all of Europe. The same thing is true of Japan. Um, Japan 
for a while was the strongest economy in Asia. And although by its own self uh, decision, it doesn't have an aggressive armed forces, it's now, oh, pretty mighty, pretty mighty militarily. And it's there, obviously, to stand as a barrier to um, Chinese expansion. So, you know, it's complicated. It's complicated. God, that's probably going to be on my tombstone. It's complicated. It's not easy. I mean, the one thing I think I'm good at is taking complex issues and trying to simplify them in my writing and make them easily amenable to public debate. But at the same time, you have to understand the complexity. I, I argue that first complexify, then simplify, only after you've considered all the complexities of a given issue. Okay. Um, following your advice triggered by my post from last Monday, in the better case, we should be anticipating more of the same. One can only hope he will follow Trump's new paradigm promised on the idea that the victors get to say how the wars end. Abi Ibn, after the Six-Day War, famously said, this is the first war in history of mankind when on the morrow of the victory, the victors are asked for a compromise solution. Israel asked for a compromise. They were willing to create a two-state solution at that point. But the losers are demanding unconditional surrender. That's, that's absolutely true. Look, I think Israel made a mistake at the end of the 1967 war. I wrote about it, and I worked on it with Justice Goldberg, who was then at the United Nations. Uh, my argument is Israel should have imposed, imposed a two-state solution in the Middle East. That is, it should have captured and kept the land that was necessary for its own self-defense, the Golan Heights and, and the areas outside of uh, Jerusalem that are necessary to protect Jerusalem should have unilaterally annexed them as the spoils of victory of a defensive war. But it shouldn't have sent settlers into the areas that it militarily occupied. Now, every country in the world is entitled to occupy another country militarily until all hostility ceased. The United States militarily occupied Germany. The United States militarily occupied Japan. Actually, Germany was occupied by four countries, Spain, you know, France, uh, England, uh, the United States and Russia, uh, Soviet Union. Um, but then, you know, they stopped fighting. And once they stopped fighting, the military occupation ended after a few years. Israel is different because the terrorists haven't stopped fighting. Yesterday, rockets were sent from the Gaza. Israel nonetheless ended the occupation of Gaza Strip, foolishly in my view. I supported it at the time. I was wrong. Uh, Israel should have maintained troops in the Gaza Strip to prevent it from becoming a terrorist enclave. You know, enemies of Israel call it uh, an outdoor prison. It's not. I've been to Gaza um, and, and uh, I've seen photographs of it and I've spoken to people who have uh, been there. It's a beautiful part of the world. It has beaches and, and um, it could have been Singapore on the Mediterranean if Hamas hadn't taken it over and turned it into a battleship, uh, a terrorist enclave. Don't blame Israel for that. Uh, that's the fault completely of Hamas and Palestinian leadership and the Palestinian people who voted for Hamas, even though Hamas took over the Gaza Strip involuntarily in a coup. If there were a vote today, probably on the West Bank, there's a good chance Hamas would emerge victorious, even though they don't recognize Israel, call for its complete destruction, call for every Jew to 
either be murdered or expelled from what they regard as their holy Muslim land. So, you know, if you're surrounded like that, it's not like the United States and Germany, the United States and Japan. Well, those are more views, my views. I'm interested in your views. So please write me, text me, uh, go to the, the, the place where you can put comments and looking forward to reading some of your comments tomorrow on The Dirt Show.